We work hard at being healthier. And what we really need is better quality sleep. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed intelligently senses your movements and automatically adjusts your comfort and support on both sides. This is not a bed. It's proven quality sleep. It's the biggest sale of the year where all beds are on sale. Save 50% on the new Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed, plus special financing only for a limited time. To find your local Sleep Number store, go to sleepnumber.com. Special financing subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. See store for details. This podcast is part of the Bomb Pod Media Network. They're staying in the shadows. It's called probing. Make sure things are all clear. Clear for what? For the rest of the world. You guys hear that? He's out there. He's a Sasquatch. to the show, everybody. I am your host, Tony Merkel, and I am really glad that you're here, and I am really glad to be here. If you're a member on the website, feel free to go check out the new episode I put up this week called Mandalay Bay, The Inside Story. It is an interview that I did with a guy named Alika, and we discuss how the whole Mandalay Bay episode came together. He actually knew a lot of people that were there, and he talks about how that happened and how he got in touch with all these people. It's a really good story. So if you guys are members, go ahead and check it out. And if you're not a member, feel free to think about becoming a member. All you have to do is go to the website, hit the membership section, and you can sign up there. It's $3 a month. And with that $3 a month, you will get access to one extra episode a month plus extra content. And there's going to be a lot of good extra stuff coming around the corner for you guys as members. So stay tuned for that. I want to say thank you to everybody who sent me emails this week, just wishing me well and tell me you're praying for me from last week's encounter story that I shared with the warlock. It means a lot to me to know you guys are out there taking care of business and just praying for me and wishing me well. It just, it really meant a lot. The response that I got from everybody, it was actually overwhelming. I didn't expect to get that kind of response. In fact, I didn't think anybody would really give a crap about my encounter story. So it really actually meant a lot to me to know that you guys cared and just wanted to let me know. So Thank you very much, and I really appreciate that. Now let's move on to the iTunes shoutouts. If you haven't known already, I will tell you again, we are doing iTunes shoutouts where anybody who leaves a rating review on iTunes will get a shoutout on the following week's show, and the best review of the month will get a free gift in the mail courtesy of the confessionals. This week's shoutouts is Avis Daddy, GTO George, and Jones8888. Thanks, guys, for going ahead and leaving that rating and review. It means a lot. And I also have to announce this month's winner, or I should say last month's winner in October. Last month's winner is Nikki Ville. 
Nickyville left a review that said, This show is fresh and authentic. It's nice to hear about the paranormal experiences from ordinary people. The different experiences help. There is nothing routine about this show. Nickyville, thank you very much for leaving that review, and you will get a free gift from the Confessionals. All you have to do is shoot us an email at theconfessionalspodcast at gmail.com. And from there, we will send you a free gift in the mail. So shoot us that email so we can get your shipping information and we will send it right out to you. Speaking of emails, if you had an encounter or a story you'd like to share on the show with me, go ahead and shoot me an email. My email address is theconfessionalspodcast at gmail.com. That's theconfessionalspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can go to the website, theconfessionalspodcast.com. Hit the connection section and you can reach me that way as well. Either way works for me, but definitely get a hold of me. Now, this week's show, we have Gary Wayne coming on. Gary Wayne is actually the author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and many of you have actually reached out to me asking me to get Gary Wayne on the show, and so this week is your week. Gary, how are you? I'm doing excellent and so happy to be here and looking forward to working with you today on the show and talking all things Giants. So yes. I love the subject. I love everything it connects into it, so it's going to be a good show, I think. Absolutely. Well, Gary, let's just start off because there's a lot of people out there that may not know who you are or what this Nephilim giant thing is. So you did write a book. It's called Genesis 6 Conspiracy. And how did that book all come about for you? Well, initially, I wasn't looking to be an author, and I'm more of a history buff and a mythology buff and uh, a prophecy buff. And so... What I did was, you know, with my passion in reading and history and mythology and prophecy as I was logging all the different prophecy narratives in the Bible and filing them to maybe dig deeper, connect them all together. At some point in time, you, you run across these giants in Genesis 6, and they come up after the flood, and they come up in the New Testament, and there's demons, and there's fallen angels. And what I thought I would do my first book was write a short book uh, that would connect somehow the giants of Genesis 6 to end time prophecy and see whether or not I had you know enough skills to write a book could I get published and would it sell uh, what happened along the way is is I, as I did even more research into it it kept opening up more doors and so when I started looking and bringing in other mythologies historical accounts, and then got into other religions, and all of this led me into secret societies and all of the things that they wrote about. You know, it turned from probably the longest book I'll ever write from the intention of writing a short book just to see whether or not I could get published. So it went from, you know, say over 20 some odd years of research and prophecy to write my first book, and then another over 10 years to write the book with all the additional research from the doors that were opening. Yeah, I know this book is uh, extremely long, but the chapters aren't that bad. Uh, the, the average chapter is what, about 10 pages, I'd say? Not even that, because it's an 800-page book. There's 98 chapters plus a preface and a, um epilogue, and there's over 120 pages of footnotes and I wanted – or endnotes, I should say, because I wanted people to verify my research if they didn't believe what I was saying. So each chapter will average, say, six to seven pages, and each chapter is a mini-story that leads into the next chapter and will keep coming up as the book unfolds so that you can read it in pieces and chunks and you can go back and reread a chapter, and it's not like a 30-page chapter or something like that. 
Yeah, I, I kind of look at it the same way as when you're reading the Bible, you really can't sit down and read the Bible in one shot. And it's like with your book, you can't really sit down and read it all in one shot and comprehend it all. Not only is it too long to do that, but every chapter is absolutely loaded with information from chapter one right through chapter 98. And it just keeps coming at you. So literally, you're going to get overwhelmed and you might actually start popping some brain cells if you're trying to take too much of it <laughs> in at one time. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, before this whole thing came about as far as your book and everything, and you were doing all this research, what were your first thoughts about the Nephilim? Like, what what was, what was your, some of your assumptions about these things? Well, you know, at first when you come across the concept, you think, well, that's what, what is this talk about giants in, in Genesis 6? And then you don't really get any detail with it. Not a lot of detail anyways. And then you have giants sort of coming up after the flood in, you know, in more numbers, but most people don't recognize some of the peoples that are being talked about as giants. So... You know, you kind of think about, well, it's just kind of odd that this is uh, in in the Bible. And so my thoughts on it were is, is, well, giant's not this normal sort of thing, right? This is not talking about somebody that is seven feet tall or six feet tall and is extra tall like King Saul was where he was a – you know, a head and his shoulders above the you know the rest of the Israelites. This is about monstrous-sized giants. These are you know even Goliath. If you take him on his cubit count as a common cubit, as it's recorded in 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 the Bibles, uh, he, he'll come out to you know over nine feet tall, almost almost ten. And if you take it as a royal cubit at twenty-one inches versus the common at eighteen, he'd be closer to eleven feet. And he's not as big as King Og is, is who, you know, sleeps on a bed using similar measurements. He's going to be somewhere between, you know, 13 and 15 feet tall based on the size of the bed. And we understand that these monsters were even bigger in the first generations and before that. So we don't know how big they are. And there's people think that the Book of Enoch is saying that they're going to be 450 feet tall based on somehow trying to figure out what an L is, which nobody knows. I think that's probably not accurate, but who knows? Uh, it's not. It's an apocryphal book. Um, but what they were, what is sort of, they were very large, and it's sort of like um, most people will sell somewhere between 20 and 40 feet. And Christian scholars will back that up by saying, you know, in, in the book of Amos, Amos uh, 2, that uh, Amorites were as tall as the cedars in Lebanon. And these were the giant trees of Lebanon, and they grew 35 to 50 feet tall. So that's kind of where that upper end comes from. That's incredible. I mean, th these things must have been absolutely huge and like not just tall, but wide, too. I mean, when you're talking about 20 feet or more, I mean, you got to account for the, the girth of these things. So uh, you hear these stories of, you know, these giants running through fields, like the Native American stories of the giants running through field and picking up buffalo and running away with them and stuff. I mean, these things must have been absolutely massive. They were, and they weren't just tall. Uh, they were incredibly muscular and wide. So typically, as you understand it, you have a height to width ratio of uh, of a human as being three to one, but it's two to one when it comes to the giants. And it doesn't matter whether or not you're talking about the Nephilim from the Bible or the Titans from Greek mythology or the Anunnaki from uh, Sumerian mythology 
or the Tuatha Dé Nan out of Irish mythology, or Zibelba out of the Kishamaya or the Daitia and the Azuras and the Danua out of Chinese mythology, or the Maiosi out of Chinese mythology. They all have almost identical accounts for these monsters, not only as being tall but extraordinarily wide, but also being very dexterous with both their their hands and their feet, which help make them these great warriors. And that's just not the only thing that would separate these from the average human who would have been probably somewhere around five feet to five and a half feet at that time. Yeah, that's incredible. So, I mean, you're thinking if it's 20 feet tall, you're about 10 feet wide. And that that's huge. I mean, uh, I come from a basketball background and a basketball hoop is 10 feet tall. And, you know, most people can't even jump and touch a a rim on a backboard. And and you're talking about that's the width of these things. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean these these were these were just not tall people and that's that's kind of the the biggest thing. And even, you know, even in the Roman times you get um uh, documentation of giants that are uh, you know, 10 feet and 11 feet tall. Um and you've got the uh, and those are the ones I just referred to are Pasio and uh, Secundilia uh, in the time of August and Augustine or Augustus, I'm confusing it with a church patriarch and uh, <laughs> Claudius, uh, and then there's also the Thracian recorded at being over nine feet tall. Uh, so th- this is recorded all the way throughout history. And Josephus says that not only were they monstrous, but their whole engineering in terms of their bone structure was completely different than that of a human, which they would have to be because of the size of the weight. Otherwise, they'd be sideshow freaks and they wouldn't be these great warriors. And he he goes on to say that they are of such a wonder that they were on public display for people to come look at in the cities up to his time. Um, so these things were are absolutely monstrous, but there's more to it than that. I mean, not only were they monstrous, but their, their eyes are said to have glowed because they were called the shining ones. And wow. uh, just as their parents, the seraphim angels or the watchers in the uh, Christian account, as opposed to the gods of the other religions and mythologies and legends around the world, um, the seraphim were a viper fiery angel and their offspring look just like them and you know you get into some non-christian descriptions like in in some of the the gnostic gospels and and the origins of the world um, they describe these uh, giants as serpent-like beings Um, and so they're referred to as having long narrow faces and prominent cheekbones and elongated jaw bones and slanted eyes and thin lips and I think if you look at, you know, a couple thousand years after they're first created and look at King Akhenaten, whose statue is in all of the King Tut museums as they go on tour, you're going to see this extended chin, these high cheekbones, these slanted eyes, and this elongated skull. Um, and so even after that long period of time, they had this viper look just like their parents. So these were... Uh, incredibly frightening, large, 
and scurry beings that um, look just like their parents, the seraphim angels or the watchers or the Gregorius, some people will call them, or the Anunnaki from heaven or the, the, uh, the Olympian gods uh, like Zeus uh, who would uh, copulate with human females because, again, people probably don't understand that the word demigod, which the Nephilim were considered and are considered as in the other religions and mythologies around the world, the definition of, of a hero or a demigod is basically the offspring of a god and a human female. So when we talk about heroes and heroes of old or men of renown or superheroes of today, which is just another reflection of that ancient history, we're talking about uh, beings that had to took on significant traits of their parents in, in all cultures, all continents, all religions around the world. Yeah, so, I mean, you're talking about these things were real-life monsters, in a sense. I mean, compared to what we are as human beings, you look at these things, and they they weren't human. And just by looking at them, you knew they weren't human. They weren't just oversized people. And uh, you hinted on it earlier throughout your talk here. How did these things actually come about? Now, I know there's different stories behind it all. There's the, the Christian perspective in the Bible, and then there's other mythologies. But uh, what would you say about how these things actually came about? Well, I think the creation of them, uh, there are some varying um, stories in terms of, you know, like, say, in Central America, where the giants are created from clay or from rocks. Um, but the large majority of them have uh, the same story. So in the Bible, in Genesis 6, where you have the account of the giants being created, the Nephilim, is you have the sons of God, who are angels, they go to human females and they take any wives they choose. And in the book of Enoch, which is apocryphal, it, it lists 200 of them on Mount Hermon where, where this takes place. Um, but this doesn't mean that it doesn't take place more than just on Mount Hermon. And so the offspring of taking these wives produces these immortal giants. And that's why in Genesis 6 you have God limiting the lifespan of these mortals to uh, or these uh, demigods to 120 years, uh, just as that will also take in humankind as sort of collateral damage as a consequence. And over a few generations, this will start to start to take place. But the first the first generation receives this immortal spirit. And uh, so these these are the giants that don't go to sleep. And these are the giants that, uh, when their bodies die out, um, their spirit doesn't go to sleep and they're not permitted to go into heaven. And so these become the demon spirits that the New Testament talks about. Now, we have a very similar story that goes on in Greek mythology, which uh, most people will understand as opposed to if I talk about the Miocene or the Diteia and maybe um, heroes and giants that they don't know the names of and, and which culture. So we'll talk about uh, Atlantis because that comes right out of Greek mythology and with the god who is the brother of Zeus, uh, Poseidon. And he takes a uh, his first wife as by the name of Clymene and uh, has sex with her and produces ten titan 
kings, Atlas being one of them, and Atlas being king over the island continent of Atlantis. But the other nine, because there's five sets of twins, they're going to rule over the other ten uh, nations of the Atlantean Empire in the antediluvian world. So it's the identical same story. And you have this told over and over and over in all the other cultures. Now, I know I've had people reach out to me and want to talk about the Nephilim. And one thing they always bring up to me is that angels aren't allowed to marry. And the only thing, and I'm not, you know, the brightest bulb around, but the way I always looked at it was, you know, just because they're not allowed to marry doesn't mean they can't have sex. I mean, there's, in the Bible, you see angels taking on the form of human beings to the point that you wouldn't even know they were angels. So that means they actually, you know, looked like human beings at some point. Is that, is that the right way to look at it? Yeah, I, w- I would phrase it that way. And Matthew 22, which is what they're referring to, only talks about uh, they don't have wives in heaven and thus have and don't have a sex. And I think that's all true. They're immortal beings, so they don't have to reproduce. And they're created in great numbers. And if we take Revelation 5, as I believe it is, as, as the number that was created, 10,000 times 10,000, that's 100 million. So there's a lot of them. They don't need to uh, recreate because they're immortal. But humans need to reproduce after the Garden of Eden because they're not immortal, and otherwise they would go extinct. Extinct. But it only says in Matthew that this is not permitted in heaven. It doesn't mean that they're not able to do so in the physical world, which is different than the heavenly spiritual dimension world, uh, and that they somehow seemingly can take a different shape in this world and any sex that they choose in this world as well. So they could become a male god or a female goddess. And that's how other religions would um, suggest that the lower gods of the pantheon are created is, is between two fallen angels procreating in the physical world with the physical form that they take to produce lower male and female gods. And when these gods produce with uh, human females, they produce the, the demigods or the titans or, or the giants. And this is a common sort of understanding in the Bible when we look at how many different forms that the angels will will take. Um, Just as um, uh, the angel uh, uh, Satan, as we know him, is known as a dragon and a serpent, which is kind of the same thing, but uh, he can also seemingly take other forms as he's in this world as well. And we see, uh, as you said, men, we see these great giant uh, shining beings. We have many different kinds of angels, and they, they, they seem to have this changeling ability and we get that in not from the bible account as an exact doctrine but just examples thereof but if you were to go into jewish mysticism or other other uh apocryphal books you you get a very clear understanding that they have this changeling uh capability and we only have that from example but in jude 1 6 where it talks about these angels who left their their habitat or habitation um, to to violate these crimes against creation, the word habitation comes from the word oiketarian, which means a dwelling place for a spirit. So they left their dwelling place for their spirit, and they need another dwelling place for their spirit uh, in this realm. And we under, we see that same word only used one other time in Corinthians uh, five. 
where it's talking about the same sort of subject, only in this manner you're talking about sort of the clothes and the body of the heavens and the body of the of the uh, earthly realm. So I think they have to take a form um, if they want to interact with this world and that they have that ability to do so. Um, but then they also seemingly are subject to the corruptions of this world and the temptations thereof. Okay. So you mentioned about this earlier about uh, some of the dead Nephilim became what we would call demons. Uh, I, if, I, if I remember correctly, that came out of Enoch, right? Uh, typically, Enoch talks about that in detail, yes. But you can make the case biblically as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, that, that's one thing that I would like to kind of go into a little bit, because um, I have the Book of Enoch here at home, and I've been reading through it and stuff. And when I talk to you know your traditional... Uh, Christian community, they often question, you know, why I would read the book of Enoch. Could you maybe lead to that, you know, why it's important to understand extra canonical books? Yeah, I think it's important so that you get a better context as to what's going on. And I want to qualify um, for, you know, any Christians that might be listening is, is that I measure everything that I read in outside biblical sources against what it says in the Bible. And so um, I want to make sure that uh, I'm not adding something in that the Bible doesn't say. So um, reading the book of Enoch, I think, gives incredible, extraordinary context, but it's not in, in the biblical canon. And I think one needs to be careful with it because it may have been, it may not be the original book of Enoch that's referred to um, in Jude. Uh, so even though that verse is in this book, we don't know whether it's been corrupted. And the thing we have to be careful of with the book of Enoch, if you're a Christian, even though I love how closely it runs to the Bible, it does have some corruptions in it. And it's a typical MO of the Freemasons and the Gnostics to put their corruptions and their markers into these kinds of books. Um, and in this case, uh, the book is first discovered by Alexander Bruce, who is both a Gnostic and a Freemason. And so, therefore, you need to, you know, have your flags up to make sure everything is legitimate. So, and some of the corruptions that might be in the book would be things like um, the angels telling, uh, the angels actually building the ark as opposed to uh, Noah building the ark. Um, and typically would be you would have angels or gods warning uh, humans and giants and other traditions and gospels of the flood that's coming as opposed to God. And that's what Enoch talks about. You've got Enoch in there being 500 years old and 550 years old. And so I wonder whether or not that's a corruption or this is a book of Enoch, son of Cain, because there's two Enochs in, in, in the Bible. There's Enoch, son of Cain and Enoch, son of Jared of the Seth line. And it's Enoch, son of Seth that everybody who likes to attribute this book to, but he was taken to heaven at 365 years old. And so he wouldn't have been 500. And then there's several other smaller corruptions, but on a 97% rule or larger, it runs very, very consistent with what the Bible says. And then there's a whole bunch of other debate on the book of Enoch as to when it was written and how many different authors may have um, contributed to writing it, and they say as many as four. Um, so 
I think it's one of the best apocryphal books out there, but you do want to be careful with it. Sure. And, you know, you mentioned about how it said the angels helping or actually building the ark. And I know that one movie with Russell Crowe came out a few years back that actually uh, showed just that, angels helping to build the ark. Uh, I'm assuming they probably got it from uh, the book of Enoch, that idea. That idea? Well, that's a Gnostic idea as well. So, okay. um, and uh, in that whole movie, you're seeing a, a lot of Gnostic doctrine being uh, overlaid on it, including Tubal-Cain being on the Ark, right? Yes. Uh, and Tubal-Cain, again, is a descendant of Cain and a descendant of Enoch, son of Cain, just as, you know, Lamech is, and there's two Lamechs, just as um, Nama is and Jabal and Jabal. And these characters are all patriarchs of Freemasonry and the ancient Masonic and Rosicrucian organizations. So there's, you have to watch the corruptions that they put in. And if anybody watched that movie, they're going to say, that's really quite a different story than what I read in the Bible. (laughs) So directionally, it, it has similarities, but it's not the same story. And that's a kind of a constant thing because they're trying to put in their ideas of what happened in the flood. And so if you look at the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, this is a story that's being told by uh, a giant who is two-thirds God and one-third human, which is Gilgamesh, and who in Enoch Book of Giants on 4Q531 to 535 is also recorded before the flood. So we're not sure whether or not he's a surviving antediluvian giant or he's recreated after the flood. And he's talking to and a Kedden or Enkidu, depending on which translation that you're referring to, who is also two-thirds God and one-third human and is created after the flood as, I guess, likely a second incursion to offset the evilness and the tyrant nature of Gilgamesh. And he's telling him the story about Upnut Pishtun or Zayazudra, again, different translations, different names, um, who is the archetypical Nephilim, two-thirds God, one-third human, and so his whole family that is on the ark that sur- survives. So they have a very, very strong tradition in, in their beliefs, where I'm going with this, of giants surviving the flood by being warned by angels as opposed to God, just as the Book of Enoch suggests, and um, that they also survived on the ark. Now, this is also used to slander and diminish the biblical account as being plagiarized from the Epic of Gilgamesh because they've got records that are older than it. And, it would, and all that means to me is, they're okay, they're just older records. But they're distinctly different accounts. They're accounts of the same catastrophe, but one is about human survival, and one is about giant and Nephilim survival, in this case, Anunnaki. Um, and all the, the macro is, is similar, but the details are completely different. And if you get into Greek mythology as another reference for the, for the listeners, is you have Deucalion and Pyrrha, or Norea, depending on which... The version that you're looking at is the wife surviving the flood, 
And Deucalion is the son of Prometheus. And Prometheus is either a god or a demigod, Titan Nephilim. And either way, that makes Deucalion a Nephilim. And so this is, again, another giant survival story. And they're all over the world, these giant survival stories on arcs, climbing the top of mountains, inside the earth, off-world, as in Amakaseth, that's in a, one of the Gnostic Gospels, and on and on and on and on. That's, these giants did survive the flood. And what's interesting at all about that, and some Christians may find surprising, is, is these giants show up after the flood, and we're not specifically told how. Right. And that's, that was actually my next thing I wanted to bring up, was the fact that these things did survive the flood. And we see in Numbers 13.33 is, a, I think, a very popular example about how they talked about seeing the Nephilim. Uh, do you have any insight as to how maybe these things did you know, survive according to maybe the Bible. I know the Bible doesn't really go into that, but what are your thoughts on that totally? Yeah, there's there's several different theories on that. And let me preface it by what you're talking about in Numbers, 30, or Numbers 13, where it says the descendants of Anak or the Anakim are, are the descendants of giants. If you take giants back, to the Hebrew word is going to say Nephilim, just as it says Nephilim in Genesis 6-4 when it says giants. And Nephilim is only used in the Hebrew three times, once in Genesis 6-4 and twice in Numbers 13. And then if you go to, as a, uh, to De- Deuteronomy 2, uh, and there are other chapters, but I'll, I'll give one for the show, it talks about Anakim or the Anak, uh, Emin, other giant races uh, that are... Uh, called Raphaim and included as Raphaim. So Anakim are included as Raphaim. So if you take that lineage back, because in Numbers 13 it says, you know, the Anakim are the descendants of Nephilim, that means all of these giants. It goes, you know, Anakim, Raphaim, back to Nephilim, that they survived the flood. So we get a number down to a number of choices as to how that can happen. One that a lot of writers will talk about is what I call somehow on the arc theory, and it includes a number of different ways, one being as what the Gnostics believe that um, you know, either Og or uh, Tubal Cain or other giants somehow stowed away on the flood or you know, hung on to the outside ropes. Other accounts and other versions would suggest that all of the People on the ark are, were giants. Some would say that just some of the brothers are giants, like Ham. Some of them say all of them are. So there's many different variations on that. And some Christians, people will say on that theory is, is that the wives, who we don't know who the lineage are, might have uh, the DNA of the giants. And that's how, after intermarrying, they, they reproduce through that DNA that's in their genes, giants after the flood, except that. These giant nations that I've been talking about, and there's the Abim and the Zamzuzim and on and on and on, the Horim, none of these giants go back to the table of nations in First Chronicles or Genesis, which lists all of the descendants that made the nations and the nations thereof um, that descend from Noah. They're not listed there. They have no genealogy back to the table of nations, so they come out of nowhere. So... When they say that they intermarried, uh, the Canaanites uh, are the ones that carried the uh, DNA and they produce uh, giants like the Hittites and things like that. And the Amorites, um, that's where the giants come from. That doesn't quite make sense to me because um, we know those descendants have a, have a genealogy back to the table of nations, but not these other nations. So they don't come from the Canaanites. 
Now, the second theory is is um, on the ark, on an ark, or uh, being helped by angels somehow. And that could be climbing to a mountain, several arks around the world, taken off world in the earth. So somehow by the angels, and likely on an ark is the second one. It would be a parallel account that would happen in more than one civilization around the world, because in most other accounts, and the Bible isn't doesn't tell us how many civilizations there were, there's anywhere from four to nine. Typically, the average is four or seven, but on some occasions you're seeing nine in, in other accounts. And so the third way of doing it would be a second incursion. And what I mean by that is that uh, fallen angels after the flood went to human beings and violated the laws of creation a second time. This time by spite, and as opposed to passion. And the reason why I say that is, is because the angels that violated the laws of creation before the flood were locked into the abyss for their crimes. So these would be the angels that weren't a passion before, and as many as a third of the angels rebelled, according to Revelations. Um, others would have done the same afterwards to create the giants, and then they would presumably be locked away in in the uh, abyss as as well. So um, those are kind of the ways that um, I would uh, say that it could happen. And and, re- and one of the reasons why I like to use the Epic of Gilgamesh is, is it gives both on an arc with giants, and you have second. Uh, violations uh, with the creation of uh, Enkidu for sure and possibly Gilgamesh. Yeah, that's kind of makes sense to me too. I mean, like when I look at the whole situation, I think about how uh, the whole spite thing and the, you know, the, the second incursion of these things, which kind of leads me to this next thought here, because that's kind of the idea that I, I think about too, that these things, they did it again. And with that thought in mind, do you think that these things are still around today? Because if they if they were around post flood, what would have made them go extinct to this point? Yeah, and I just wanted to uh, sort of underline that I missed before is is to go along with why, and that's my more favorite um, theory is is that there was a second incursion and. I like to back things up biblically, even though sometimes you have to speculate. So sure. back in Genesis 6, um, what it clearly says is is after you know they chose the wives, um, in, in 6.4 it says there, there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men and they bare children unto them, the same mighty men which were of old and men of renown. So it, all, it clearly says in those days and also after that. So does that mean after the first incursion and still in the antediluvian epoch or again after the flood? We don't know, but that's the closest thing I can say as to um, backing up a second incursion. Whereas the other ones, I have to rely on other accounts from other uh, religions and um, and uh, legends to, to, to make the case like the of Gilgamesh. And then the other thing that, you know, people will point to from a Christian perspective is, is that, you know, God uh, destroyed all of the humans and all of the flesh of the earth with the flood. Well, I would also note that in Genesis 6-7 and Genesis 7-4, what it clearly says is he destroyed everything he created. 
these beings were created by rebellious fallen angels or gods from another perspective wow. and human females, right? So if you want to get totally technical on that, um, you have to also take that into account. And that leaves sort of open the door that there's a possibility. But what we do know is the Bible clearly records these people coming out of nowhere. Yes. So somehow they show up. Right. And that's that's the thing. I mean, like you said, they, they're clearly there post-flood. And uh, that's some great insight. I've never heard anybody say that before. That's some really great insight. Uh, now, leading coming back to that, do you think that these things could be around today? Because I do hear stories of people saying, uh, for instance, I know I've heard people saying that they've, they've seen what they call, they don't call them Nephilim. They, these people call them some kind of mountain giant. And I know there's been sightings of these things in Montana and North California and other areas, but those are two areas within the United States that people say they've seen these things where they say they look like human beings, but they're a lot bigger, 18, 20 feet tall. And, uh, and also a description is that they have like tusks coming out of their mouth, which I can only imagine are like some kind of fangs or something. I don't know. Have you ever heard of that? Not the tusks. No, I've not heard that. And I've not heard them being uh, of quite that size. Did those accounts, do you recall, did it say whether or not they had red hair or not? You know, I can't remember because I hear so many stories of the red hair giants right. in yeah. America. Yeah, so most of the grave sites that we get with these giants that have been uh, dug up and recorded in newspapers, uh, and there's an incredible amount of newspaper clippings from about 18, say, 50 to about 1950, um, recording these giants. They would be found with, uh, if there's hair left, they would be yeah, they would have red hair, just as the Peruvian skulls that are being um, dug out today and excavated have have red hair. And the reason why that's important is is from the Middle Eastern giants, um, as we understand it, and in the Greek uh, culture as well, and also in the Kishamaya, as they record these antediluvian giants, they had two colors of hair. They had red hair with hazel eyes or green eyes, and or blonde hair and blue eyes. Now, if you get into other accounts around the world, they had different skin color because these ones are all white. Um, and if they were created all around the world, they would have you know different skin color. That's why I asked about the hair. But we do have lots of uh, uh, newspaper accountings of excavations that all went to the Smithsonian um, between that time frame that I had talked about. And I, post, I regularly post those newspaper articles on my uh, Facebook uh, wall um, just to sort of keep underlining that there have been giants discovered. They're just not 18 feet tall. They're going to range from 7 feet tall to 12 feet tall. But still, those are very, very large beings, especially when you're considering anything that's over nine feet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I know a lot of times people talk about uh, the Matthew 24, I believe it's verse 37, uh, where Jesus said that, so as it was in the days of Noah, so will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, with that idea in mind, do you, do you lend credit to that verse as to saying that Nephilim could return in the end times? Yeah, I think we have to be open to that possibility. And uh, I know a lot of people say that doesn't refer to the Nephilim. It refers to the time, to the days of Noah, that his second coming in the end time will be like the days of Noah. And if that's the case, you have to consider his life before the flood and 350 years after the flood. So that will include 
some infamous events like Babel and Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and all of those were also touched by uh, the same polytheist religion that grew up around the giants through the seven sacred sciences and the descendants of Cain and the mystical religions and the secret societies they created thereof. Um, and for the record, people may not realize it, but the Masonic society believe they uh, were created at that same time by the patriarchs of Cain and to create their, their uh, secret societies. And so... Um, I just kind of lost my train of thought there um, on what we were talking about when I got on the uh, seven sacred sciences. Um, <laughs> no, it's uh, I, I had asked you about the uh, numbers or Matthew twenty four thirty seven scenario where people reference that as the end times when the Nephilim come back. Yes. So, um, yes. Yeah, so when you consider that this was the age of the giants, one has to be open to that possibility. And uh, I think, uh, and I know a lot of people might disagree with that, uh, that it's just that people were marrying and going on day to day. That will be part of it as well, because there will be a lot of people caught off guard with the deceptions that are coming. But, you know, if you look at Daniel 243 and the metallic dynasties, um, that the Nephilim uh, control these dynasties. So let me back backpedal a little bit. The Nephilim giants usurp the kingship's both before and after the flood. And they create royal bloodlines and um, descendants and dynasties thereof and continue to intermarry as much as they can to keep their bloodlines as pure as possible. And out of these comes the metallic dynasties of uh, Daniel 2, which are going to be Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and the end-time Roman Empire, which is iron and clay. Um, and so you've got gold, silver, bronze, uh, iron, iron, and clay as the metallic empires. And in Daniel 2.43, it clearly says in the King James Version Bible that um, these uh, empires and their descendants are going to intermix in, with the seed of, of, of humankind. So we have these bloodlines that are the royal families that have been kept being, keeping their genealogies all the way back into prehistory that are going to affect the end time, at least from a descendant perspective. So the other question gets to be is, is are we going to see a little recreation of new giants or were other ones surviving in mountains and things as other mythologies and mythoses go? Possibly, but no matter what, it's my belief that the Nephilim somehow, some way are going to impact the end time and control the 10 groups of nations or the 10 empires or the 10 spheres of influence or the 10 trading blocks that are going to be assembled for the end time world government. We work hard at being healthier. What? And what we really need is better quality sleep. The new Sleep Number 360 smart bed intelligently senses your movements and automatically adjusts your comfort and support on both sides. This is not a bed. It's proven quality sleep. It's the biggest sale of the year where all beds are on sale. Save 50% on the new Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed, plus special financing only for a limited time. To find your local Sleep Number store, go to sleepnumber.com. Special financing subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. See store for details. Yeah, and I mean, when it comes to this whole idea of Nephilim uh, at least coming back around in the end times, maybe say you don't believe they're existing today, that's fine. But the idea of Nephilim coming into existence again, 
I, I mean, if you just pause and think about the technology that they have today, I mean, it, it's not far-fetched. I, I actually, uh, I was doing a delivery a couple weeks ago, and I was delivering to this place where they sell caskets, and I started talking to the owner. He's an older guy, real older. I mean, he's in his 80s, close to 90s. And he was sent, telling me how he was uh, an engineer for the United States military back in the, I think he said the 60s or 50s, and he had top secret clearance, and he was doing a lot of side projects for them, uh, you know, top secret stuff. And he said that the the technology that we have today, they had back in the 60s. He knows because he was working on it. He said, so he can't imagine what kind of technology they have today that we don't know about. And I asked him to come on the show, and he's like, no, no, I don't, not about that stuff. I just like talking about what I used to be involved in and stuff. But uh, it was a really interesting conversation with him and kind of really hit me hard because I started thinking – what kind of technology do we have today and would it be possible to bring back some kind of ancient form of giants? Uh, have you ever heard anybody talk about that stuff before? Yeah. And I talk about it quite regularly. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, again, if we look at that concept, um, the end time that Jesus talks about is going to be like the days of Noah. And we take that to a little bit larger, like as in all of the days of Noah, And I mentioned the seven sacred sciences and their creation of the uh, mystery religions. This comes from the development of these sciences that these Gnostic religions and secret societies believe Adam was taught in Eden. And after Eden, Adam teaches that to both Abel and Cain. Abel gets murdered by Cain. Cain gets ostracized. And then Adam teaches it to Seth, who continues to practice it in a way that's going to honor God, but Cain goes a completely different direction and develops these sciences in a way that's not going to honor God, is going to lead people away from God, is going to not give credit for anything, and is going to honor his new pantheon of gods. And he develops these these technologies with the help of fallen angels, and the fallen angels will also provide, and this is recorded in all religions and mythologies around the world, additional knowledge from heaven that is used as an accelerator to the seven sacred sciences to take it to a technology that is probably greater than what we have today. And the reason why I say that is, is because if we're not in the end time yet, we may be close, but we're not there yet, then that means that the technology that we're having is still developing and that the ancient epoch, which was destroyed by the first apocalypse by fire, had a greater technology because we're not in the end time yet. And if that's the case, then you can imagine all sorts of DNA manipulation. You can imagine all sorts of genome manipulation. You can imagine all sorts of fabulous beings that we're about to create and all of the mythologies that are recorded around the world, whether or not you're talking about, you know, Cyclops or you're talking about Hydras or if you're talking uh, about uh, centaurs or you're talking about Pegasus or if you're talking about lion men and on and on and on and on, that these may not just be fanciful imagination. It was either created by angels cohabitating with other animals to create them, or there's a DNA technology that's going on to create these other violations against corruption 
And that's why it says the whole earth was corrupted, not just the violence, the whole earth, the animals, the plants. And I think that's why God calls the animals by, you know, species, not every animal on the world is represented, just their species on the ark, because he knows which ones haven't been corrupted. And so I call that the greater Nephilim concept that was going on. And so not only have you have got the copulation, but you've got other types of human crossbreeding with animals and other things and angels going on in the antediluvian epoch. Well, we're very close to doing that today through DNA manipulation and, and transhumanism and other aspects that are going to create other similar type of things in that Nephilim concept, which they call today the new man in the occultic societies, just as that's what the Nazis were trying to do as well. When you talk about DNA manipulation, uh, I, I still am so surprised about how how many people, when you talk about it to them, they look at you like you have 10 heads. You know, there's actual articles out. I think the Huffington Post has written about DNA manipulation with uh, them growing human organs and pigs and things like that. Like that's that's now today. That's actually happening. And and there's a lot of people that theorize what is actually going on at CERN. And I know that's a whole different bag, you know, that I'm sure you could probably talk about for oh yeah for that's a long a show time. in itself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe maybe down the road we can do that show because um, you know you hear a lot of different things coming out about CERN and stuff. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating to think about what maybe they're actually going, what's going on there, but there are a lot of uh, hidden things that are right in front of your face. If you know what to look for uh, such as, I think it's what the God, the goddess uh, Shiva in their logo. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and you know, Shiva is, is one of those gods of the underworld. And uh, just as you have a god of the underworld in all the pantheons around the world, and they're the same pantheon, they're just different vernacular names. So you can use Mot or Nergal out of the Sumerian mythology, or you can use Apollyon uh, out of the Greek mythology, which is reason why that is recorded in Revelation 9 as a Baden in Hebrew or Apollyon in, in Greece, because this is... Um, one of the main leaders of the Watchers, or the Gregory, or the Anunnaki, whatever you want to call them in, in prehistory, that created these, these demigods who is locked away in the abyss today. And so the, where the name CERN comes from is, is basically two different gods that are representing a similar type of god to the gods that I just mentioned, um, which are Cernunos, which is a Druidic god of the woodlands, and um, also in the Etruscan pantheon, it's known as Cern without the Unos. It's just C-E-R-N, and he is also the god of the underworld and, and a um, woodland god, just as the Pan god is out of Greek uh, mythology as well, and just as... Um, all of these gods who are these gods of the underworld are related in that sort of manner. So, and those are also seemingly connected back to Azaziel, which um, Enoch will talk about as being the leader of the Watchers. You know, uh, kind of rewinding here a little bit, I wanted to ask you this question, and I, I just kind of looked over it. Uh, when it comes to these megalithic structures, I personally believe that the Nephilim were very much involved in building these things. I know a lot of people think that maybe it was aliens or some kind of un, un uh, or actually I should say some kind of forgotten technology that mankind had. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, I think um, yeah, there's two types of structures. One is ones that were built by the fallen angels or the gods before the creation and the domestication of, of humans. Um, and in most accounts is, is that people will say some, most of these great cities were built um, by the gods. Um, after that, though, you have this this knowledge being passed on to humans where they are going to create their own megalith structures as a representation of their great civilization before the flood as a memorial to how far that that technology, uh, and, and in this case, masonry, which is the fifth science or geometry, uh, but called masonry inside the craft, um, is used to memorialize um, not only the ancient society, but to build these terrific megaliths in honor of their pantheon of the gods. Now, the question gets to be is, is were the giants used as the manual labor to build that? Perhaps. And I think there's some traditions that will suggest that, but those were mostly enslaved giants that were doing it and reporting to the kings of these civilizations who were also Nephilim. But it has more to do with, I think, uh, the kings that are working with the polytheist religions to develop the technology of the sciences that I talked about earlier that come out with the ability to produce these great megaliths. And so I think they sponsor it. I think there's some giants being used as manual labor, but I think it's the level of technology that they developed before the flood. Do you, uh, how do you equate that level of technology then to the global scale when we find you know, pyramids throughout the world? Uh, do you think that this was at one time uh, in our ancient history something that was more, I guess, I don't know how, I don't know how to phrase this right, but maybe hum- humanity, mankind, or whoever was building these things were more spread, spread throughout the world than we would like to think as far as communication think- goes? I think so because you have on every continent around the world, for the most part, um, a recollection of these giants. Well, for the giants you have on all continents, um, you also have that same story of the flood and that the giants were the ones who caused the flood with how they um, led the world and corrupted the world um, to cause this destruction either by the God of the Bible or gods in the pantheon, uh, depending on which perspective you're coming from on that. And what goes along with it is is things like pyramids showing up in almost all of these civilizations that have similar sacred geometry and similar math to build them. Some are larger than others, but they all have a very similar sacred geometry. And they all have a dating that does not line up with what secular science uh, and education would have us believe, even in the face of obvious uh, testimony against it from the peoples and from um, things coming down through history where we have records of the pyramids well before Khufu in 2300 that, you know, to around the time of 3000 and that they were built even before that. So that puts them well before the flood. Um, so it's, it's, it's one of those things where when you have so many commonalities of the same pantheon, the same story, the same catastrophe, the exact same story of the creation and how the world becomes corrupt and how the giants rebel in on and on and on and on and on, it 
is mind-boggling to suggest that that's coincidence. And I would suggest that that would go past very quickly if you calculate the odds and permutations past mathematical zero, which is one in three and a half trillion to four trillion. Wow. Yeah, that's those are some odds. <laughs> so I, I wanted to ask you this question too. I, I'm kind of wrapping things up here, but there's two questions I wanted to ask you and I don't feel like they really go together. So I'm just going to fire them at you. Uh, the first one here, fallen angels. Now I've heard people say that they're locked away. I've heard people say that the, some are locked away and some aren't. What are your thoughts on where the fallen angels are today? Well, um, it's a combination. According to Jude, only the ones that, uh, left their habitation uh, to violate the laws of creation in Jude 1.6 are actually in the abyss. Um, and so you might want to expand that to maybe the worst of the demons or to, um, or to uh, uh, some additional bad angels, but certainly not all of them. What we do know is, is that some of these, uh, many of them, by the sounds of it, uh, in the greater number are still active today, degraded in what they look like, degraded in stature, just as um, Hail El, which is the Hebrew for what the secret societies would like to call Lucifer, uh, translation of uh, 1412 Isaiah, um, is degraded from the greatest being and a cherubim uh, and seraphim to a Satan status. So they're all degraded in stature and how they look um, in, in the physical world. And whether or not they're still permitted into heaven, I think some of them are. Certainly in Job, we, we, we see of angels, not the degraded ones, but Satan going into the throne with other angels to present himself uh, to God. And certainly in Revelation 12, we have angels that are warring with God in heaven. So they have somehow access to heaven. How, how large for the fallen ones, we don't know. But not all of them are in the abyss. That's the important point. And they're still here doing evil, just as the demons are working with them. Right. And, you know, I... I heard a story recently, and I'm not, I'm not going to be able to remember all the details, but this person told me that this story was relayed to him through email, that this guy was, I guess, he was put in a mental institution because they thought he was crazy, and he wanted this person's opinion on what he thought this guy was going through, and apparently this guy was saying he was hearing voices in his home, he lives by himself, I'm assuming, and uh, he would actually see these entities in his home talking about things about the flood and, and uh, uh, before the flood. And, and the way the guy was describing it in the email, he didn't know what these angels or these, these um, I shouldn't say angels, but these entities were talking about. But when I heard the story and I was talking to this guy, a lot of the things this, this person was describing sounded like either it was fallen angels or uh, demons that maybe were Nephilim at one time uh, that this guy was experiencing. But a lot of the details were straight like out of the biblical narrative. And I was thinking, and this guy has no clue uh, about the whole biblical narrative. He had no idea what he was saying when he was telling this person this stuff. Uh, But he experienced such a extreme encounter uh, that was ongoing. I actually, I'm trying to get the guy on the show to share his account because it's, it's absolutely fascinating. But from what I understand, he's really standoffish when it comes to talking about this because it was so serious to him. Um, Right. And, and go ahead, go ahead. 
No, go ahead. I was just I was just going to mention uh, two things to that. One is uh, I should also mention as another backup reference to which angels are in the abyss. Look to two Peter two four, where the angels who sinned in the days of Noah were locked in away in the dungeon as well. And it's what's important to understand here about angels and demons and who he may be talking to is and. We get some of this in the Bible where demons will possess a human, especially, you know, the famous one is Legion out of the New Testament that lots of horror stories or movies are made out of and, and narratives. Um, but they tend to contort and they're not a friendly host and it's, it's, it's almost designed to ruin the human, but they seem to um, want to... Uh, possess because when they're not in a human body, according to what Jesus said, um, is is that they're just wandering the the earth with this endless thirst for a body. So they're looking to possess. Uh, but an angel or a fallen angel, I should suggest, um, does more of an avatar concept, which again is another occult term. But that's where they control a body, but it's not this violent sort of takeover. And somehow they, they, they do it a little bit differently and the body doesn't become deformed and you don't get this demon look and your head's not spinning around in circles and stuff like that. So there's a couple of different sort of concepts on there. And we get that avatar concept that is not in that many applications in the Bible, but certainly when Satan is uh, in the Garden of Eden and he avatars or coaches the uh, Nakash, the serpent, um, to deceive uh, Eve, I think it's an avatar, but that's my speculation. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned about Legion, and I just find it funny. I always tell people that, you know, if you want a real good story, just go to the Bible, because a lot of the movies that are made today are, you know, some form of stories that came out of the Bible, like the whole Legion thing. It's referenced throughout all Hollywood, and that's straight out of the Bible. So <laughs> I always yeah. find that funny. Well, and and again, where it says in the King James Bible, where it says devils, that'll go back in those stories to the word, you know, damon, um, which is the bodiless spirit. And if it's a devil that is like a capital D, like in um, Satan, it goes back to Diabolos. So again, two different entities are being talked about here. Okay. All right. So my last question for you, Gary, and this is a question that I know a lot of my audience is going to want me to ask because a lot of my audience is very much into the cryptid uh, side of things. This is a suggestion that always comes up. Do you think the whole idea of Bigfoot, Dogman, these kind of cryptids are forms of Nephilim? I think uh, if they're real, and I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it is, um, that these are what I was talking about earlier as part of this greater form of the violations against the laws of creation before the flood and survivors thereof and or uh, the greater Nephilim concept, because they all have the same correlation. So let's take Bigfoot, for example, right? So it's a, it's a larger, hairy type of being. Uh, the Horim uh, are cave dwellers and known to be hairy, and Nephilim were known to be hairy beasts. So you have some sort of a relationship there, but I think Bigfoot's a little bit different, even though the Horim were cave dwellers. Um, but in the Bigfoot mythos, they tend to have this... Um, ideology that they go between the dimensions through the portals in the caves, which again is, is very common sort of understanding in occultism with, with, with portals. But they have a commonality of association 
uh, and location and similarities that are hard to deny, just as you can put Bigfoot, uh, Nephilim, and little people together, as in the elementals. And there's three different kinds of elementals, which, again, we don't have time to go into in terms of the four classifications of fairies and all the three classifications of the smaller fairies. But they all work hand-in-hand in sightings, locations, and throughout history. Okay. Yeah, because I, I always ask that question, and I always get that question from people. And uh, it's one of those things where you know I kind of go both ways on. I, I could see it. Uh, now, I guess my last question, my exiting question would be, if they were Nephilim, would you suggest people to continue looking for them? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think they're specifically Nephilim. I think they're other reprobate beings created by the fallen angels and the followers thereof, and somehow they survived the flood same way that the Nephilim did. Um, I would you know, I would not encourage people to pursue them too, too, too readily because you don't know what's going to be attached with it. Uh, you don't know what demon spirits might be there with right. them. You don't know what other fallen angels might be there with them. Um, but I know that's not going to def- deflate people's curiosity, and I have just as much curiosity about it as other people. And I would love to know whether or not for sure they're real and there's 100% certainty and if they're intelligent beings or not. But everything suggests that they are intelligent beings and that they were created in prehistory just as um, one example would be the gray aliens. I would mix in uh, in that same sort of context, because in fairy mythology, they go back into prehistory. This is not in the Bible. This is outside the Bible. I want to state that for clarity. But there's one particular fairy that is comes out of the uh, gnome classification of the three classifications of the elementals, which are ugly-looking, smaller uh, fairy beings. And these ones look after the genealogies, and they look after the technology from the Nephilim. So again, there's always connections back to Nephilim and to the gods because they're created by the gods. And they serve the demigods in this earth. And they seem to have these flying machines in fairy mythology. And uh, they come through portals or shays or fairy mounds or fairy domains. And a fairy domain is like a um, Stonehenge, mini Stonehenge type of rock formation that are all around the world, noting that Doman stands for portal. And in the Scottish tradition, these little grey neighbours, as they like to call them, and just greys and other fairy mythology, they would kidnap people in these flying machines for a fortnight and do scientific experimentation on them, always sort of designed to somehow procreate or things that they needed to continue to survive, and then they would return them back after a fortnight. I give a description in my book about a fairy, uh, an exact quote, and a story of a fairy abduction. And if you didn't know it was a fairy abduction, you'd swear it was a great alien abduction. Wow. Gary, you're a wealth of information, and I would love to have you back on the show sometime. Where can people get your book at? Well, I would come back anytime you invite me, Tony. So um, anytime we can hook up again, let's do it again. And you can uh, find my book uh, on uh, most uh, online retailers, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Books a Million, you name it, they all carry it. 
you can also order it through your local bookstore if you want to support your local bookstore because it's distributed by Bookmasters out of Pennsylvania. So they can order the book in for you if it's not on the shelf. You can also go to my website, the Genesis6Conspiracy.com, Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's what the number six. And you can read a, a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters on the book if you want to get a good feel for it. You can order a signed copy from me if you would like that. And you can also connect into both Amazon and Barnes & Noble off that website and into the Kindle format. If people want to follow me at all or get a hold of me, you can get a hold of me through the website or on Facebook under Gary Wayne. And I also uh, have two Genesis 6 conspiracy pages, and I also do work uh, on the Giantology page that's out there as well. And I also have a Facebook group called Gary Wayne, the Genesis 6 Conspiracy Group. And you can also get a hold of me or follow me on Twitter at GaryWayne63, at GaryWayne63. If you have a question, I will get back to you. And if I can uh, add anything to a comment that you just want to send to me, I will get back to you on that as well. Great, Gary. I really appreciate you being on tonight, and thank you very much. Well, happy to be here and uh, hoping the audience liked the, our discussion, and hopefully it uh, raises their curiosity and uh, dig a little bit deeper because that's the, that's the whole point. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Thank you. Well, that's the show, everybody. I really hope you enjoyed it. And if you did enjoy it, leave a rating review on iTunes for your chance to win a gift in the mail plus a shout-out on next week's show. A couple of things I forgot to mention earlier. One, many of you sent me emails asking me what happened next, as in what happened after that encounter with the warlock that I had. Well, I have delivered to where he works since then, but I have not delivered there since I've connected all the dots as to what happened that day. And I was pretty ticked off once I realized what happened. Uh, So next time I see him, I'm going to be confronting him as to what happened that day. And I'll let you guys know how that goes when I find out. And next week, we'll be right back here on The Confessionals. But until then, stay safe out there, friends. All my friends are heathens, take it slow. Wait for them to ask you who you know. Free.
sitting next to you But after all I've said, please don't forget All my friends are here, take it slow